Welcome to another episode of the Cyberware podcast series with me, your host, Sherwin, and co-host, Raj. We're joined today by our guest speaker, Mabasar Kamal. Uh, in this episode, we focus on cyberpunk. Let's begin. For our listeners out there, uh, Mabasar, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, hi. Hi, everyone. This is Mubashir. Um I graduated from, I finished my master's from MSU uh, two years ago uh, in IT. And now I've been currently working with a pen testing company in Minneapolis called NetSpy. So I'm working there as a security consultant. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And I just wanted to expound a bit more on our title that we selected, Cyberpunks. Uh, I was kind of going on the, the, the gaming bandwagon. Um, I know that there's a great video game coming out called Cyberpunk 2077 that I don't know if you're a gamer at all, Mobu. Yeah. But I'm super pumped for that. But essentially, we I just wanted to play on that title a bit and just trying to focus on more of cyber theft and, you know, uh, malicious criminal activity in regards to hacking. All right, let's start with our first question. What are the most common cyber criminal activities? So one of them would be, or the most vulnerable, I think, is actually got to be the phishing stuff, right? Because the, the phishing stuff, it, it gets a huge amount of victims, right? I mean, um, and recently it started off with, if you see the COVID-19, there has been like a surge, upsurge of different kind of phishing. And there's been an increase of um, SMS phishing going on a lot. So... That I would say, and then um, if I have to get into specifics, there's always the the database injection that happens. A lot of the software hacking that's been happening with web, web applications, they're usually starts off with um, you know SQL injection, or in case of no SQL injection, it's some kind of like uh, filter bypassing. Yeah, I know uh, phishing is a big issue that we tackle on a daily basis, you know, organization wide. Yeah, and it has been a really big increase um, after this COVID-19. Yeah, I just checked our inbox this morning and I've already got like what, three phishing emails that I had to take a look into. Yeah, it, it's definitely something that's not going to stop. Yeah, it's uh, it's a catch-22, I guess. And um, the next question we have is, so from your standpoint, what are some of the most common exploits used by cyberpunks? Um, hmm. so my point is usually, I, you know, I work with a lot of web applications, um, sometimes a little bit of thick clients. So web applications, like I said, is a SQL injection, you know, just um, some of the very basic stuff, a um, lot of cross-site request forgery, you see, um, and then and then running unpatched web servers is a big one. So, you know, unpatched um, OSs, unpatched uh, web servers you're running, um, you know, because anybody can just like figure out the version you're running and just go to like a CV website. And, you know, from there on, you can kind of like tiptoe to figure out how to exploit that. And for our listeners out there, could you just explain what cross-site forgery means and, and SQL injection for those that are unfamiliar with the terms? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So... Uh, I'll start off with SQL injection because 
that's one of my favorites and I think it's a, it's a big one. So let's say when you're searching, you know, you go to a website and you're searching something, you're typing something on the text box, right? And it gives you the result back. So when you're searching, you know, it takes the, whatever you're typing and it queries the database. So query just like, you know, it's asking the database, hey, by the way, this user typed in this thing. Could you check if... Um, you have this information, right? And the database gives you back the result. But if a malicious user, let's say an attacker, they can exploit that by typing the query, whatever they're searching, and then actually inserting, modifying the query in such a way to insert uh, a database query, right? So let's say I'm going to give like a very quick example. It would be like, you know, um, grab this data from this table right that's like a simple database query but the hacker could be like from this table code and where something you know let's say one equals to one which is going to be render true right and the database goes like oh okay so either i can if i don't have this information but he gave me something that renders true you know i can give him all the data so it's kind of like you're, yeah, you're kind of like exfiltrating data in a way by tricking the database. And uh, for cross-site request forgery, it's it's basically like um, a lot of times you see in different form submission. So when you have HTML, you know, uh, applications, you have like a form that you submit. You know, you click a button, submit, and any any attacker could send a you know craft a link url and send it to uh you know to the victim and when they click on it and everything since the form doesn't have a c-surf or a cross-site you know request forgery c-surf protection then that victim is actually becoming a part of that attack right i mean that's an innocent victim he doesn't know what he's doing he's clicked on it and oh he doesn't see anything what happened but you just made him into like a part of that attack so yeah yeah, so just to clarify a bit, like for the SQL injection, essentially just adding in special characters even would qualify, right, into like a text field for a data set. Yeah, yeah, because, um, I mean, yeah, I guess you, you kind of have to know, you know, like, um, I guess the SQL language a little bit to figure out how to exploit that. But um, most of the time, you know, a lot of websites like are very open to that attack. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> and and hopefully organizations can focus more on you know fixing vulnerabilities in it. Yeah, it's uh, I think it it will only get fixed when we kind of incorporate those practices into our you know programming practice, right? So we have to keep in mind that hey, when we're building something, let's also keep the security aspect of that in mind. All right. So for our next question. Since your organization focuses on pen testing, what are some of the ways you guys try to assess and simulate such attacks? So uh, without going too much further into like clients specifically, since I can't, but um, so the way it works is, you know, we have uh, different variations of clients. And so they have different requirements, how to go on about testing their, you know, uh, infrastructure. Uh, it could be just like, you know, something um focusing on the servers right and or or else it could be like something on specific web application that they have or it could be on like you know mobile applications and stuff right so those are like three different four different stuff that we have um 
so they so let's say web applications they explain to us how the web applications work a little bit and then they they define a scope what we can do like you know we can't just like you know like unleash everything on you know on their server and kind of like bring it down even even if it's usually like a testing server or something we can't usually bring it down so um we, they set a scope we discuss the scope with them, what we can do and we cannot do. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we have our NetSpy, we have our own set of checklists, right? So that we go, you know, we go through, we have that. And then if if we know it's uh, it has a database, obviously, like a database injection, um, we check for RCE, uh, remote code attacks. Um, what, what exactly constitutes remote code attacks for the listeners? So... So RCE is remote code execution, and let's say from a personal experience, I did have I exploited one remote code, and it was um, so they were running an unpatched version of Apache, right? And Apache is the server, correct? Yeah, yeah uh, it was. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to discuss the exact application they were using, but yeah, an Apache server, and so like I said, like you know, we check the CVE and stuff just to kind of see, you know if there's something and then i found it has an exploit and i and you guys would know that because um i actually use metasploit mm -hmm. so i use metasploit to kind of like you know first let's see kind of poke through it a little bit let's see how much further i can get and when it kind of looks like hey i might get an rce right so usually we communicate with the client because just make sure that you know, because when you when when you get an RCE, you do have the leverage of um, jumping onto their other servers, right? And you know you kind of have to ask for them, hey, is it okay for you guys to if I can poke around other servers too? So so we uh, we communicate th with the client saying that hey, I, uh, there's a probable RCE there. Can I poke around? And most of the time they go like, oh yeah, sure, and they're really they're usually pretty enthusiastic depending on the clients. And then, um, and you know, I loaded I loaded up um, MSF, you know, or Metasploit, and yeah, from there I tried different payloads and set up um, a netcat, a netcat server, you know, on my one as a, like a reverse uh, reverse listening. And sorry to cut you off, but uh, netcat is another tool, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So netcat is pretty much. Um, Netcat is you can make a connection to a server or you can have a server connect to you, right? So the the reason we do is that sometimes servers have uh, any kind of inbound connections. So any incoming connections, they put restrictions, right? So, but a lot of times they have any outbound connection they can be pretty open because they're like, oh, anytime my server is trying to connect to something, you know, I trust that. So with Netcat, what I did was that I tricked the server, application server, to actually connect to me, right? Since I, because they had an inbound firewall set up. So it made a connection, reverse connection to my client, Netcat. And yeah, from there, I actually got a PowerShell. Um, you know, like a, like I opened a PowerShell because they were running uh, Windows and i mean yeah unfortunately i didn't had the root access because they disabled root but even the user i did have had a lot of privilege to you know just poke around the different system servers and everything yeah and, and that's interesting to hear from your experience that 
uh, certain organizations are you know they allow you guys to to poke around and they're more enthusiastic when it comes to things like that um, I would think otherwise you know um, that no they, 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 they view you guys as trying to really uh, really probe through their code and through their through, through their software and you really really try to hamper you know progress per se by um, focusing too much but that's that's a good thing that organizations take security seriously at least with the clients that you deal with yeah a lot of clients are actually i mean you know i mean from time to time you do have like you know clients that are a little bit more uh let's say picky right <laughs> so but yeah most of the time they are they'd like to like cooperate with you so um talking about the attacks and stuff there's the the bad side which is the cyber which is cyber crimes and according to you would you say like are cyber crimes mostly organized or are they largely independent yeah, so nowadays, I mean, you know, we're obviously seeing more state-sponsored attacks, right? So, I mean, now it's not only, like, just groups of hackers. It's actually, you know, government entities, right, that are actually employing the attacks. So, I mean, definitely it's organized, no doubt. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like um, there's there there's a... Um, uh, I, I might... I might say it in the wrong way, but uh, there's kind of like a mercenary hackers nowadays, you know. Hackers for hire, essentially. Yeah, hackers for hiring, pretty much, right? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it, they are kind of organized or like semi-organized because, you know, anybody can pretty much like hire them, but yeah. And do they pick on organizational targets or do they just pick on, so since you say like mercenaries or like hacker mercenaries, do they like specifically go after any target they're paid for or is it mostly like high-end corporate I don't know. I, I I don't really exactly know the specifics, but um, you know, some of the reports that is in it's usually like the state-sponsored attacks, and where they do hire like you know, this um, group of hackers, pretty much, right? And um, they are not really, um, they don't really belong to any specific country or something. So they're that's why they're like hackers for hire, right? They're being getting hired by different countries or different uh, corporations for actually uh, doing espionage, right? So, um, yeah, I think their targets are usually high-end, you know, a little bit. I mean, I mean, they don't really target just like, you know, specific general users per se, like you and me or something. Yeah, and, and that, that's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, but sometimes they can use us as like a part of the attack, you know, unknowingly. That's a scary thing. Especially if we're like a family connection to someone that works in a corporate institution or organization. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that's how you can actually get into somebody, you know, let's say a secured, secured corporation. I mean, the best way you can get through them is somebody close to them, right? Like they're, let's say their parents, they have a old, you know an old parent that might not be tech savvy too much so you target them right do some phishing stuff and they take the bait right and from there on since um family usually inherently has a trust built in between in, in with each other so you know so you're already in the network of trust right it's just another form of privilege escalation correct yeah <laughs> i mean you can say that <laughs> That's a good way to put it. 
kind of uh, according to like what your experience has been in the past few months due to the pandemic have you seen kind of an increase in cyber crime and if if yes like what specifically kind of have you seen yeah i've seen a lot like like even you even mentioned that you know how you got uh, the spam and everything i've seen a huge influx of just phishing um you know spam email um the new form that I've seen is through text messages. That's where that's where I'm kind of like, oh, I do get text messages, you know, oh, something about COVID, you know, and I'm like, okay. And this time is actually more crucial because, you know, you can't blame people because people are panicking, right? And they're taking advantage of that people panicking to kind of rush them into performing an action, right? Oh, just click here and, you know, kind of like prompt him thing, right? So they are they are more easy prey now just because of the whole panic situation going on. Right. And it's unfortunate that hackers are using, you know, uh, the uh, attitude of the situation and they're trying to manipulate it to their advantage. Mm-hmm. So for our next question, um, any tips or advice that you can offer people to better protect themselves and avoid malicious cyber activity on their systems and possibly on their home network? Yeah, um, yeah. so, like, just by doing some, you know, simple safety guidelines, I guess, I think you can protect yourself from 80% of the attacks. One would be um, if you ever see an email or get a call or a text message, you know, that, you know, might throw you off a little bit. You're like, huh, something's weird. Always call them. Call the corporations, not, you know, if 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 you get a call from somebody calling you saying, oh, hey, I'm from this bank, you know, or something, um, you should be like, oh, can you give me a callback number and I'm going to call you back, right? And a lot of times you would see if it's a spam call or a scam call, you would see that they are more persistent about not giving the phone number because, you know, they're trying to like, reel you in kind of thing so uh if you get an email you know from a bank or from you know your company or something always yourself kind of like email back don't reply to them but email to your uh company to your bank um call the go to your website type type in the website actually if you see a link that you see on the email instead of clicking on the link because you know what you see is not what you get (laughs) <laughs> when it comes to hacking, right? So you might see a really innocent-looking URL in the email, and you click on it, but hey, you don't know it was maybe an URL shortener or something, and you're now taken to this like almost look-alike website where you type in your creds and you get hacked. So if you see a URL in the email, open up your browser and type it in yourself, right? For most part. I mean, I know it's a little bit more effort for the for our listeners and probably people out there, but that really saves you a lot of money in the long run. Um, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, money, time, everything, and yeah. So that would be one thing. And um, network-wise, I guess I would say home network. Nowadays, most of the you know router settings and everything they do, they they do encourage users to, you know, apply best practices like, you know, oh, hey, password should be like, you know, 12 characters or more or something. And they're generally good guidelines and, you know, use um, WPA 
password scheme, not a WEP. So if you ever go on your router setting and you see it's set to a WEP web, you know, password scheme, change it. Change it to a WPA2. So, because um, WEP is so easy to attack. Like, it's going to take maybe, I don't know, two hours or something, <laughs> depending on, like, you know, new computer. So change it to WPA2. Um, yeah. And I know, I know another common tip um, that I can share for our listeners out there is a lot of people forget to update the firmware from their original router settings once oh, they get it out of the box. Yeah. And if you don't patch it on a regular basis, like just like any other device, it is pretty vulnerable and can be prone to attack. Yeah. That that's for, that that was an interesting thing. I believe was it? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was the government of Japan that actually started employing a firmware upgrade to all the home users. I don't know if you have heard of heard about it. So it was kind of like, um, you know, anybody's, you know, a vulnerable router can become a point of attack or a point of access, right? To corporations or companies, right? And so the Japanese government, they were like, hey, we're going to start patching, you know, your guys' routers. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard about that specifically, but I did hear of something quite recently in the news. I knew there was, uh, I, I know of there's a new attack that was, uh, it was a botnet attack and it was, um, I, I, I failed to remember the hacker's name. Um, but it, it was just one hacker controlling a bunch of different devices. And that's, you know, pretty much how botnet attack works. And he was gaining access to all of these systems via old D-Link routers. And so people hadn't patched their D-Link routers and they were getting pop-up notifications. And so right now it's less of a concern since all these D-Link routers are being, you know, they're they're being discarded because they're they're reaching end of life anyway. But the, the funny thing is that this hacker was, was pr not using it for any malicious purpose but he was just hacking into people's system and creating this army just so he can download anime videos. Oh, I did hear about that. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you heard about that, right? That was funny. Yeah, yeah. I think no, I found that I hilarious. I think he's, yeah. I forgot his name. Yeah, it's it, it, the botnet, you know, it, it peaked at around 10,000 bots in 2015, which was which is crazy because it's it's a pretty old hack or an article. You know, it kind of it kind of begs the question: like, what would you call him? Is he a white hack, a white hat, or a black hat? I'd call him somewhere in between. So he might be a gray, a gray hat. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, that's a it's it's an ethical question right now. <laughs> From my personal, you know, opinion, I would still call him a black hat. Cause think about that. I mean, cause he's using your. IP address, right? I mean, that's associated with you to obtain something illegally. Right. And it's without your permission. Right. Oh, and it's without your permission. So it's kind of like, well, you know, if I were to like, you know, download something offensive material and using your network, right? So eh, I don't know. <laughs> Especially with the copyright restrictions and stuff that, you know. Yeah. Because you could like, you could be facing charges and while he's just like, you know, washing away animes. <laughs> oh, I don't know if you've seen, uh, 
or I don't know if it's any relevant, but uh, what did you think about Elon Musk and uh, naming of his his son? That is, yes. So I did see a... I'm not sure. Uh, I think Elon Musk did show up in Joe Rogan's podcast recently, and he was like, "It's pronounced X Ash A twelve." I mean, he he's the he's the first human to be named after a password. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. His username and password could be the same. <laughs> <laughs> th- th- there was a great meme where it was like, you know, a lot of people like name their passwords after their kid. Yep. And then Elon Musk is like, no, I named my kid after my password. And like, there's another one that it was even like, oh, password strength maximum, you know, because <laughs> it uses like <laughs> all characters and numbers. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, even I think, how many letters? One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I think eight almost. That's true, because that, that AE, that Ash, I think it's one character, right? I'm not sure, actually. Like what's the what's the you know what's the rule for name registration like just like your birth certificate wise can I mean I mean I I definitely know that there are special characters because you know Spanish names have accents yeah right? yeah, yeah. In French names um, uh, I know in German uh, for German names they have the, some of them have the umlaut yeah which are the two dots uh-huh. um, but yeah so special characters are definitely allowed mm-hmm. but I've never seen an instance where there are numbers uh-huh. so that you know that's that's going to be interesting yeah uh, one one question uh that we did get um from a, a listener was that what does a typical day look like for an information security analyst and i think we all can kind of discuss on this for like a minute or so because we're all security analysts you guys can start off first for me and sherman as information security analysts we're mostly focused on uh, our ticketing systems and also the mailbox that we check for any potential spam that we get from, you know, staff, faculty, or students and kind of um, tackle those. Yeah, we also dabble with a lot of interesting proprietary software that helps us mitigate risk and, you know, um, assess uh, a lot of uh, the, the log data that we have. Uh, I know different organizations use different uh, SIM tools like um, yeah, and, and for those unaware, a SIM is essentially a systems incident and event management system um, to to monitor uh, and help quantify um, our log files. So uh, my one starts off with, you know, like I said, uh, I get clients, uh, look at the project and look, check the scope, you know, what I can do and not. And um, we set up some scanner tools, right? while we're manually kind of poking through it. So we do both like, you know, the automatic side of, you know, testing, and then we do the manual side of testing at the same time. So yeah, while the scanner is doing its magic, I go through the application, I kind of try to look, you know, look under the hood kind of thing and see if I can exploit it pretty much. And depending on the project length, you know, it can be sometimes can be like two three days can be a week right um so depending on that timeline um yeah then once once you think that you've covered the application pretty well you know pretty in depth um then you generate a report uh making sure you if you find a vulnerability to to report it like really clearly like step by step so that the client or their security team can um 
you know, generate themselves, that they can verify themselves that, hey, there's a phone number to exist, you know? Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's interesting to note that, because um, I, I would think that based on your ex expertise and your role, uh, you'd be classified more as a pen tester as opposed to having the title of a security analyst. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, we are we are essentially pen testers, right? So, um, I mean, I think the pen testers is just, it's more newer and the more newer and out there and maybe, you know, I don't know if how companies... They just want think. a more traditional term that... Traditional term, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that works. Uh, thanks, Mobu. Thanks a lot for, you know... Um, for joining in on our podcast as a guest speaker. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And also for our listeners out there at MNSU and beyond, we want to know your thoughts. Uh, send us some feedback at link.mnsu.edu slash cyberwarefeedback. And we'll post a link in the description so that you guys can send us some feedback. Right. Or you can reach out directly to us at itsecurity at mnsu.edu.